time I hear you play, you get a little bit better. And uh, me being an old trumpet player myself, you got a good tone. You got every time I hear you, it just, just gets better and better. So um, that was good today. Thank you very much. I used to play the bugle. I led the charge at Gettysburg. Most people don't even know that. <laughs> For the South, and we lost the battle at Gettysburg. <laughs> well, we're coming down to the end of chapter 15 in the book of Proverbs, and uh, uh, chapter 15 has been a great chapter. Last week, you'll remember, we looked at, oh, I think it was five or six verses, and we gleaned a lot of, of key things out of there, and I began to show you how there's so many uh, good things in the book of Proverbs, and uh, hoping that, you know, you'll learn and, and helping you put the Bible together. You know, that's really my main goal in everything that I do here, um, learning your Bible, helping you to learn how to divide the Bible up in such a way that you can understand it as it lays out to all the different aspects. Uh, you know, and we know from the Bible there's three fundamental main divisions in the Bible that the Bible lays itself out. Most people, they never get to that level. Um, there's an inspirational application, and of course we know that that means the Bible means something for your everyday life, and that is, that's very important. And that's where most people really start and stay with the Bible. Unfortunately, many churches and most pastors never get past that point either. But we also know that there's a historical perspective. Uh, history uh, of the world is nothing more than the history of God and the Bible. And being able to put the two together in a way that really structures the Bible into history is invaluable to you. It puts a whole new meaning to why things are the way they are, not only through history, but certainly today. And then we know that the Bible has a doctrinal application. This is truly one of the lost arts of the Bible today, realizing that everything in that Bible has a prophetic application to it, something that's going to project itself into the future, but you're actually reading it in a time frame uh, within in the Bible. You know, you, you, you'll hear me talk a lot about uh, a person getting a working knowledge of the Scriptures. And uh, what I mean by that is not just you working to learn the Bible, though we know that the Bible takes work. You have to be a workman, as the Bible says. But also getting to the place where you see and understand how the Bible will do most of the work for you. When you get to that point in your life that the Bible really does the work for you. And this is what I mean when I talk about a working knowledge of the Bible. Not you just working to learn it which you're going to have to do, but getting to that place in your life where you, you follow some simple rules and principles and uh, the Bible then begins to unlock itself to you. You know, in the world, working people uh, have a little cute little thing that they say. They say that you, we ought to work smarter and not harder. And, and, and that's true. But it's never more true when it comes to learning the Bible and getting the Word of God down. In life, in the Bible, uh, in Christianity itself, there are certain principles you, you follow, certain rules that you have to follow. You follow them, uh, and in life, uh, you'll be successful. You follow them when it comes to Christianity, and the Bible will unlock the Scriptures uh, for you right before your very eyes. It'll be everything that you could ever want from it. When you don't follow them, and most people don't, not only in life, but when it comes to the Bible... Then you'll find a life of disappointment in all your purposes. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago in chapter 15, verse 22, that where the, where the purposes were defeated. 
And as the Bible said a couple of weeks ago in 1521, you'll wind up with a destitute life. Nothing really working for you. Now, today, we want to look at our last set of verses in this chapter, and we'll close out chapter 15 today. As I said, it's been a good chapter, and hopefully uh, we've learned a lot from our study uh, in this chapter. One of the good things about Proverbs, it doesn't matter where you come in. It doesn't matter if somebody shows up as a visitor today and say, oh, man, they're in Proverbs chapter 15. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be... No, no. Every, every sermon, every lesson in Proverbs will not only be a, a continuance of what we're studying, but you will see that it is a study unto itself. It'll give you exactly what you need. Now, I want to begin reading in chapter 15, verse 30, and we'll read it down verse 33, and it says this, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and a good report maketh the bones fat. The ear that heareth the reproof of life abideth among the wise. He that refuses instruction despises his own soul, but he that heareth reproof getting, getteth understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Bob Gregg, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the offering? Good to have you home from China first and then South America back to pray for us. There you go. <laughs> Father, we just thank you and praise your son, Jesus. Lord, thank you for this time we uh, get to spend together uh, opening up your word. Lord, I pray that all of us can not only hear what you have to say to us, but <coughs> what you tell us to do. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Verse 30 says, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and a good report maketh the bones fat. You know, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart. In the Bible, the light in a man's eyes will reflect his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible is very clear that uh, that spiritual light that shines in his soul and through his spirit, uh, all based on his attitude of heart toward the Lord. The eyes, our eyes, are the windows of our soul and our spirit and represent the life that we have. In fact, when a person dies or they think that he's dead, one of the ways that they'll tell and make sure is to look into the eyes because the eyes are the windows of the soul. And when a man is dead and the soul is gone, the eyes reflect that. And in the Bible, eyes are a great study in the Word of God. And we know that uh, in life there are uh, basically two kinds of people. And I realize that people come into all categories, but you bring people down into two fundamental categories that we know in the Bible. We know that we have saved people and we have lost people. And as a general rule, they'll represent the two ways that man looks at things, the eyes as we find them in the Bible. Uh, you'll either look at things through the eyes of God and you'll see things the way the Lord wants you to see them, or you'll look through the eyes of the world. That may be your education. It may even be your religion. You have a lot of people who are far, far from the Bible truth that are in religion. And when you talk to those people, you'll find that they claim that they believe in God. They claim to believe the Bible. They claim they're in churches. They claim that they're a religious group that claims to have. But you talk with them and you'll see that they are far from what the Bible says that they should be. And they're looking at it through the eyes of the seminary where they went, the people that taught them. Uh, we look at things based on the way we have been taught. And we either look at things as a saved person through the eyes of God, or we look at things as an unsaved person through uh, the, things, the eyes of the world. 
and the eyes of the world will look at sin. It'll look at ungodliness. It'll look at rejecting God and all of the things of God as, a, as, a, as an okay thing. You see it in the world all the time. Where once sin was counted as sin and it's wrong, now it's accepted today. It's the way people look at things through the eyes. We talked about a couple of weeks ago in Proverbs 15, verse 20, how that an unshaved man, and unfortunately many Christians, take their folly and being blinded by the things of the world, turn their, think their actual folly, the sin they're in, is really their joy. I remember teaching you on a number of occasions, especially in the people ministry, uh, about, uh, you know, dealing with people. And I remember a great passage that I used many, many times back in 2 Kings chapter 4. And you have the story of Elisha. Elisha took over after Elijah was taken up into heaven. And he big, takes over the ministry and carries it through. And in the story there, we have a boy who just went out to do something one day and he, he died. And his mother sent for Elisha, who was the man of God. And you remember the story. Elisha came in, and the boy is dead. And, um, you know, there's a strange process that, that invokes here to bring that boy back to life. The Bible says that Elisha crawled on top of that guy, that kid, and put his eyes to his eyes, and put his mouth to his mouth, and put his hands on that man's hand, that boy's hands. And when we... Step back and look at that for a moment. We think to ourselves, as I'm, I know I did many, many years before I really understood the scriptures, I thought to myself, I'm not sure what this is all about here or how this is really going to help. But sure enough, sure enough, when he did that and he stretched himself on that boy and put his eyes to his eyes and his mouth to his mouth and his hands to his hand, the Bible says the boy came back to life. Years later, as I looked at that and learned some things about the Bible, I've taught you that that's one of the greatest, greatest places in the Bible that really helps you understand how we win people to Christ. All of us, hopefully most of us, want to be used of God to touch other people's lives. But you just can't work your way in. And many Christians make the mistake of just trying to knock down the door, so to speak, of making things happen in a person's life. 2 Kings chapter 4 shows you a process. And I've taught it to you many, many times. The, uh, this, this boy who was dead is a picture of an unsaved person. The Bible says that a man or a woman who was unsaved is dead in trespasses of sin. And the man of God gave them life. But he gave them life by putting his eyes to their eyes, his mouth to their mouth, and his hand to their hands. And I've told you many, many times, the key to reaching people, even as a Christian, is to understand why men and women, unsaved, do the things that they do, hand to hand. Why they say the things that they say. So he puts his mouth through his mouth. And how they look at things and see the things the way they are, eye to eye. Some of God's people are so caught up in what they believe about God, which is fine. They're so narrow-minded in their, in their understanding of, of, of the things of the Word of God that there's no tolerance for unsaved people to be unsaved people. We expect them to become Christian before we'll deal with them. And of course, that's not the way it works. When you reach, deal with people, when you reach people, it comes because you've been made the investment in their life of understanding why an unsaved man says the things that he says. Why they do the things that they do. And through the eyes to the eyes, how they see things the way that they do. 
There's only two ways that people look at things. They'll either look at things through the eyes of God or they'll look at things through the eyes of the world. And the eyes of a saved man should look at the same thing that an unsaved man sees, but he sees it through the understanding and the spiritual discernment that he has, and therefore he rejects those things that are not what God wants them to be. He sees them because he has understanding, as the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, as vanity. Where an unsaved man will look at an opportunity and, and try to take that opportunity to better himself, no matter what it may be. A saved man will look at the same opportunity and realize that it's a dead-end street and it's not going anywhere. And what gets us as Christians in trouble 100% of the time will be when we as God's people quit looking at things from God's standpoint and then begin to look at them from the world's standpoint. You know, the Christian life, and I've told you all through this chapter, is not very complicated. I've told you that and preached to you and, and taught you and, and really harped on it to you over and over again, the great concept of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, that the Bible says that God's ways are not our ways, that His thoughts are not our thoughts, and that the responsibility of every Christian is to get to the place in your life, and, and nobody expects you to be there if you just got saved, or even if you've been saved and going through discipleship and, and discipleship too, nobody expects you to be there that quickly. But at some point in your life, you work toward the goal that you see everything in your life from God's standpoint. You see it through the eyes of the Lord. Eyes are really important in the Bible. And until you do that, Nothing in life or the Bible will really work for you. Uh, you. You have to get to that point in your life. Now, most of God's people will, will never do that. You know, we use a phrase in conversation. We say, we're talking to somebody, and I'll say that you, you, you'll lay something out to me, and I'll say, oh, I see. But when I say I see, I, I'm not looking at what anything. You're talking to me. We use the phrase... Wow, I, I never looked at it that way. And yet, I've never stopped and looked at what you're talking about. You see, the phrase, I see, means more than just with your eyes. It means to comprehend it. Oh, I understand it. I get it. Uh, we will say, well, we just don't see eye to eye on this issue. That's not a reference of your physical eyes but rather your ability to grasp and understand a situation with somebody else and you don't agree on it. So you simply say, we don't see eye to eye when it has nothing to do with your physical eyes. And most of God's people have that basic problem. They don't see eye to eye with God. The book of Song of Solomon, without a doubt, is, is, is one of the greatest books in the Bible that talks about what my relationship should be with Christ. It also details out how he thinks and looks at me. And in Song of Sodom in chapter 5 verse 12, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it talks about him when it gets down to his eyes. It says that he has the eyes of a dove, dove's eyes. Ah, but then when you go to chapter 4, just one chapter back, verse 1, when it's talking about the bride, the Christian, you and me, it also says that we have dove's eyes. I, I looked at that years ago where one verse says that Christ had the eyes of the dove and then the other verse says that we have eyes of the dove. And to me it became so clear 
that we are to see things just like God sees them. Now, a great passage that illustrates this is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 23. Let me read it for you. And it says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where three thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thy eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness. How great is that dark? What an incredible passage. Verse 22 says, first of all, that the light of the body is the eye. What you look at will affect everything in your life. It'll affect your attitude of heart. It'll affect your, your love for something. Uh, it, it, it's, 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 the lust of the, it's the lust of the flesh. It comes down to the point where it's the lust of the eyes. Everything that you are will be based on what you look at. Verse 19 through 21 says that what you look at will be based on the treasure of your heart. When you love the things of God and the things of God is your treasure, then you'll look on those things. When you love the things of the world, then you'll look on those things. Not complicated. Verse 22 says that if your eye be single and full of light, your whole body will be full of light. It says if your eye be single. That means simply focused on the things of God. You're not looking all around. You're singly focused on the things of God. It says that your whole body will be full of light. But verse 23 says, But if thine eye be full of darkness, your whole body will be full of darkness. It comes down to what we look at. What we look at forms the imagination and forms the thoughts. What we allow us to come into our spirit will affect everything about us. Now, look at the last part of verse 23. I think this is pretty telling here. It says, If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Wow. A light that is a darkness. A light that has no light. A light of darkness. You know, at Halloween time, one of the favorite lights that they use in, in displays of to try to fool people is a black light. And if you've ever been around a black light, a black light, a black light takes the edge off of what you really see. A black light won't allow what is really there to be seen the way that it is. It kind of masks it. And uh, they put them in bars all over the place when you go to bars, and that's so that the women will look better and the guys will look better. And it's a thing where a black light will, will mask the true identity of something. And here's a case where the Bible says that there is a darkness that is a light that is in somebody. And of course, that's a reference to Satan. That's false religion. That's the man's folly in him thinking that it's his joy. It is the fact that Satan blinds you with a false light. The Bible says there's no marvel that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, but he's not an angel of true light. He's a black light. And whatever light is in you, in your eye, will be what fills your body. Now look at, the, look at verse 30 here.
And a good report maketh the bones fat. Back to Proverbs. Now, a good report will be the answer from the Lord in any issue that is right and it's good. And it's basically God's viewpoint on it. We know that we have a physical health and also a spiritual health, a well-being. That's because we have a physical body. We talked about it in the body, soul, and spirit several weeks ago when we laid that out. That's because we have a physical body and a spiritual body. A bad spiritual health in time will lead to a bad physical health. This is called psychosomatics in the professional world. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that you find that in Mark 2, 5, you find it over there in uh, Numbers chapter 5, verse 27, and you find it in John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Sin can cause many physical issues. The Bible calls it the destruction of the flesh in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, because a person committed a spiritual sin. Over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29, the Bible says when somebody comes to take the Lord's Supper and they take it unworthily, that it says that some of these people, it says, for this cause many are weak, sick, and some sleep. The sin that they did of coming to the Lord's Supper had a physical impact in their life. Sin, when it becomes in your life, out of control, unconfessed, will lead to conviction. Conviction will lead you to guilt. The guilt will lead you to worry. The worry will lead you to stress. The stress will lead you to anxiety. The anxiety will lead you to depression. And from there it goes to the fact that once you get to that point, you don't sleep the way you should, or you're very little, you don't eat the way you should, or you stop eating. It affects then your job. It affects then your family. It affects then your marriage. And the sum total of man's physical issues will go back to where he's at in his relationship with God. Your spiritual well-being and your physical well-being. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22 is a great verse that shows you the Word of God uh, is likened to a medicine. It says, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bone. It says, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. Back in Jeremiah chapter 8 and Jeremiah 46 and 51, it talks about the balm of Gilead. Now, the balm of Gilead was a plant that grew in Gilead that had medical properties to it that if somebody got it and applied it to whatever they were struggling with, it had a healing agent to it. But in the Bible, you find that God uses the bomb of Gilead in relationship to Israel's spiritual issues. And here he's talking about a physical medicine that he says that Israel needs to get themselves right with God. And of course, in the context, the bomb of Gilead is a picture of the Word of God. It's the medicine of Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22. And that's a reference to your spiritual body that in time will affect your physical one. Now we know that as a Christian today, our spiritual body grows. We know that it matures. We also know from places like the book of Hebrews that it needs to have exercise. Your spiritual body goes through things and changes just like your physical body does. There was a time when you were a baby. 
Now you're an adult. And there was a time uh, in your spiritual life that you were a baby. And now many of you have entered into uh, the maturity level of, of your Christianity. In fact, we've talked about it many, many times. There are seven stages of spiritual growth found in the Bible that brings a Christian in a spiritual sense from a baby Christian to someone who reaches the apex of where he should be. The Bible talks about babies in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Bible talks about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, little children. They're not babies anymore, but they're still little children. That'd be maybe three or four or five years old in a physical sense. Then it talks about in Galatians 3.26 and 2 Corinthians 6.13, children. Then it talks about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, it talks about young men. Okay? You're growing up spiritually. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it talks about fathers. Now, this is interesting because in physical life, when a man becomes a father, now his life changes. Because now, up to this point... <clears throat> He could do whatever he wanted to do, go wherever he wanted to go. But once he gets married, that kind of corrals it a little bit. But I'll tell you something, once you have a child, it really corrals it. Now the child dictates where and when you go, where you go. And that's just the way that it is. But now it, uh, when you become a father, it brings it down to now you take tremendous responsibility. You're not your own anymore. Now you have a wife. Now you have a child, many cases more than one. That demands a tremendous responsibility in a physical sense. But when you look at the same concept in a spiritual sense, it does the same thing. When you get to the point as a Christian that you enter into the father mode, that means that you have grown to the place now where you're taking responsibility for somebody else. You're now not just free to do whatever you want to do. You're discipling somebody. You're working with somebody. You're helping somebody here. You're going down here or over here, and you're laying out the scriptures. And now you have come to the place where you are responsible for somebody. The sixth one is an elder. The Bible is very clear in, in elders in 1 Peter 5.1. They're the people in the church that helps the pastor. They take on the same responsibility that he does in dealing with people. And then Philemon chapter 1, verse 9, the, the, the last one is the aged. That is someone who has been around such a long time and knows the Bible and been through the experiences of life that people look out to because they, they want to learn. And many times, the spiritual growth process in people's lives gets delayed. It doesn't always go the way that it should. You know that's true in a physical life too? There will be young kids that won't grow properly. There'll be people who are adults, they're 30, 40 years old, but they're still small. They're midgets, so to speak. And, you know, they, something went abnormal in their growth process, and they didn't develop the way that they should. And there's an enormity there that it, it's not, everything didn't go exactly genetically the way that it should have went. But you see that in a spiritual sense too. Let me tell you something. There are many, many spiritual midgets walking around Christianity. You walk into every church ought to have a nursery, physically and spiritually. A healthy church physically will have young couples like we have that just keep having kids. 
your church grow just by that rate right there. But also spiritually, your church should have a lot of babies in it. People who just got saved. Now you walk back in the nursery back there and open that first door and you'll see people in there, babies in cribs, they're changing diapers, they're giving them bottles, you know, and they're, uh, they're uh, you know, some, some of the kids, they bring them in here that just had them. Zach just had his little gal in here. Sometimes you bring your little guy in and uh, they're very cute, and very adorable. And, you know, you, you watch them and we love, love them and all those things. But everybody loves a baby. Everybody loves to hold the baby. First thing you do when you go to the hospital and the baby says, I just had a baby, can I hold him? You know, do you want to hold him? I never hold him. I, I just, you know, I, I, it's just, it's, I mean, you don't want me to hold him, okay? But women love to hold them. And they're walking around, you know, and, and holding them, and then, you know, they all get the idea like Jamie does after she holds the baby, she wants to have another one until we talk her out of it. <laughs> but you know it would be weird if you walked into a church at eight or nine grown men and women in their 30s and their 40s. We're laying in a baby crib back here. Big hairy legs hanging out. <laughs> Sucking on a bottle. One of them little bonnets on. You go up and try to talk to them and they just cry. Drop bottle on the floor. If you don't pick it up right now, they whine and cry. I mean, just crazy. You would know that there was something wrong. That's abnormal. And I want to tell you something. There has to come a time in your life and my life where we have to grow up. That process of spiritual growth. You cannot stay a spiritual baby all your life. You're whining. You're dirtying your own diapers. You're throwing your bottle on the floor. You're temper tantrums because you don't get your own way. At 40 years old? 30? 20? You see, there are some issues. Baby Christians are okay. Every church should have a spiritual nursery, but you need to grow up. Many don't. But this is the point that he's talking about here. And, uh, uh, you know, your physical relationship, your physical growth will be in conjunction with your spiritual. We saw this earlier in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 9, where he says, a rottenness in our bones. He's talking about your spiritual bones there. Now, the context of that is, a, is, a, is the wrong woman in your life or in a, in practical way. It could be a wrong man in your life too. In a spiritual sense, your bones, your skeleton structure represent the structure of your spiritual relationship with God. In this case, the rottenness of the bones, this case a woman, weakens the spiritual structure in a man's life. And it can work in any format. doesn't have to be a woman. There will be other things in your life that will weaken the structure of your body that you ought to keep as strong as you can. We saw in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 8, when you depart from evil, the Bible says, It shall be health to thy navel and morrow to thy bones. The need for a strong spiritual structure in our Christian life, our skeleton structure, your physical skeleton holds everything together and holds everything up. And in your spiritual skeleton, your spiritual structure, the bones, when it gets a rottenness in them because of, of sin, just like your physical bones, when it gets a rottenness in there because of disease, 
In Ezekiel chapter 30, uh, 37, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on, on the resurrection of the nation of Israel. And it's the, it's the chapter that talks about the valley of dry bones. And it's a reference to Israel being dead now for hundreds and hundreds of years. Decayed, nothing to bones. And those bones being strewn all through the land. It's a representation of Israel's spiritual condition. But God begins to bring that nation back. And in that chapter, you actually see the pulling together and the meat going on the bones, the flesh coming to it, and then Israel as a nation stand up and get the breath of life from God and become alive again. But you know where it starts? It starts with the bone structure. We sing the song about it. Them bones, them bones, them dry. Bones, them bones, them bones, them dry. Bones, them bones, them bones, them dry. Bones, now hear the word of the Lord. Is that pretty good, Will? Thank you, son. (laughs) Stayed up all night working on that. Looking in the mirror. It's your structure. Your skeleton structure that, that holds you together. And when God wants to put together the nation of Israel, he starts with a structure because he has to build everything in that nation on a skeleton structure. And when God wants to build you spiritually, you have to have a strong structure in your life. A strong spiritual body by seeing life from God's standpoint, not your own anymore, and departing from evil. I don't normally stick my nose into people's business. I, I, I really don't. I, I, and if somebody asks me, and I, I'm, I, don't always, I, don't, I don't give advice to people who don't ask for advice. I, I don't think that's my place. But if I might for a moment, uh, uh, may I, could I give you some really good practical advice in the art of finding a spouse? You already got one. What are you looking for? <laughs> want to know for? What is wrong with him, Court? <laughs> For the sake of getting Will off the hot seat over here, would you like a bit of advice about how to find a spouse? Yeah. Thank you. This is simple, but it's very powerful in its point. My first suggestion to you would don't marry somebody who has AIDS. Don't marry someone who is HIV positive. But at the same time, in a spiritual sense, don't marry somebody that's NIV positive either. I have probably three or four hundred VCR uh, tapes that I made over the years of, of war movies that I saw off TV. And I was watching one the other night, and on the, I love, I love, now I watch them for the commercials, because the commercials go back to the 70s and the 80s. I, I broke on, you know, the, the commercial, and it was Ronald Reagan speaking. How long has it been since Ronald Reagan's been the President of the United States? Years. And I have to laugh at how, how things change. On one of the commercials in there, this guy comes up and he says, do you want to lose weight? I got the great weight program for you that'll curb your appetite. Get AIDS. 
and he holds up a little tube of pills called AIDS. AIDS to help you lose weight. Now, that was back in Reagan's era in 1886, 87, 88. Wow, how things have changed. He says, you want to lose weight, get AIDS. But you know it's true today if you want to lose weight. Now, the reason why I say don't marry somebody, and I thought probably some of you think this has been cruel, but it's not. I'm making a point here. The reason why I tell you not to marry, my advice to you is not to marry somebody with AIDS and don't, is the fact that don't join yourself in a physical sense, your body, to someone who has, through the filthiness of the flesh and their lifestyle of the world, now contacted that dreaded disease. Now, the reason I tell you not to do that is very simple, because if you do, in time you'll get it too. It's just that simple. They'll pass it on to you. You may think, well, I won't. Let me tell you something. I guarantee you, you will. Now, I said that to say this. Forget about the physical thing now. That was just to get me to hear. In a spiritual sense, in finding a mate or finding a spouse, don't marry or join your body to a man or a woman who has a disease-ridden spiritual body. That's my point. Don't join your flesh to someone in a spiritual sense that isn't a husband or wife who isn't healthy, clean, strong, mature, and in the spirit of God. And, 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 and when you find that, join yourself to them. Because if you join yourself to someone who is in a disease-ridden spiritual body, just like the physical, you'll get what they got in time. And you too will die spiritually. You find someone who is is healthy spiritually, clean spiritually, strong, be a spiritual leader spiritually, mature, a spiritual body, and then you join yourself to them, and you do it through a biblical process, which is laid out in Genesis 24, 1 Corinthians 7, a number of places in the Bible. You don't go to ChristianSingleWhoWantToMingle.com. Or eHarmony.com or the newest one, IBUMate.com. You see it as God sees it. You, you, you understand it. And, and there's a process in the Bible. There's rules that you follow. And when you follow the rules and everything, you're okay. When you don't, then you get into problems. Now look at verse 31. The ear that heareth the reproof of life abideth among the wise. I, I, I love the term, the reproof of life. What a great term. Let me ask you a question. How well do you take reproof in your life when you're faced with areas that are not right? Last week I told you that you can measure the measure of a man's relationship with God on his ability to handle things when they don't go well or he doesn't get what he wants. But I'll give you another one to that. You can measure a person and their spiritual relationship with God by how well they handle reproof. See, everybody likes instructions. And there'll be some people in life, saved and lost, who, who, who just have to have everything in life their way. They're spoiled beyond recognition. It's all about them. It's all about self. They'll throw the little temper tantrums when they don't get it. You know, they're like a three-year-old child when he doesn't get what he wants. They'll love you right up to the point 
that you have to deal with them on some issue and then you're the bad guy. I've seen parents the same way. I've seen parents have kids. The kids were just about great kids right up to the point that you had to correct them on something. Then watch what happens. And I'll tell you, in my 40 plus years of the ministry, they're everywhere. My three dogs... When I go buy dog food, I always get them these bones that have the stuff on the inside. I don't know what it is, peanut butter or whatever, because they, it keeps them occupied for hours. But I got Izzy's downstairs most of the time. I got Buddy and I got Daisy, so I got three of them down there. So I'll get four bones. Otis is upstairs. I'm not even, I know what she's saying over here. We got four dogs. I get that. I'm making a point about the three that I deal with. I don't deal with Odie. Odie deals with himself. He's too busy going to the bathroom and everything upstairs, you know. I got three dogs downstairs, but I got to buy four bones. And I took a picture of it one time. It's the cutest thing in the world. It reminds me of so many of God's people. Buddy, the big male. He has to have all the bones. It isn't enough that she has hers, she has hers, hers, and you have his. He has his. No, no. He goes over, and I bought an extra one figuring that that would make him happy. But you know, when, when you're immature, nothing makes you happy except having everything that you want to have when you want it. The cutest picture I got of him is standing over in a corner, sitting down. All four bones in his mouth. They are sticking out everywhere. They're this long. He's got two behind each other, one on top of it, and a fourth one coming down from here. He can't eat them. He can't chew them. He can't do anything with them. But all he wants is the fact that I got them all. And there's a lot of people like that in life. They have everything, and they can't use half of what they got. But they just want it all. And the other two dogs drive me nuts. They're standing there barking and barking and barking and barking. And he'll sit there all day long. And he's satisfied because he's got all the bones. He can't chew them. He can't eat them. He can't even bear them. He can't even walk without one falling out of his mouth. Boy, I've seen a lot of people in life that same way. They get everything they got and want everything they got, and if they don't get it the way they want it, they go crazy. And what they do after they get it, they just sit in a corner and just speak, take satisfaction that, look what I got. I got everything I could ever want. My goal in life is to stay as far away from that kind of drama world as I can. A man or woman who has the spiritual insight to see the value of reproof, as much as the value of blessings, the Bible says it is a category all by themselves. Verse 31 says that they abideth among the wise. That's elite company. Most of you, God's, most of God's people, not most of you, most of God's people will never see that level of Christianity. And on a point scale from a 1 to 7, that would be where father, elder, aged. But they never get there. Now, along with verse 31, look at verse 32. He that refuses instruction despises his own soul, but he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. 
Now, verse 32 takes us up a level from verse 31, if you're paying attention. Note the word soul here, used in the Old Testament context, like I've told you a couple of weeks ago, uh, for the body. They're used interchangeably because we know they're stuck together. And what he's saying here, that in time, your rejection of instruction and reproof will destroy your body, destruction of the flesh. You know, when he goes to school, no man in anything in life, no man can learn to read or to write or to do math or to learn science without both instruction and reproof. You've got to have them both. Most people don't like it, but you've got to have it. And Christianity, no man can learn the things of God without both instruction and reproof. Verse 32, both words are used in the same verse. I have the greatest respect for school teachers. You know, great people out there do great, marvelous things, and they get a lot of notoriety, but the bottom line is it all goes back that when they were kids, someone taught them and trained them in a school system. School teachers are the great unsung heroes of life, in my estimation. And you know, they don't take the job because they make a lot of money, because they don't. They should, but they don't. They take the job because they love to teach. They love to teach others and instruct them. It's a great and noble profession. And all of us have been to school, and you know that you learn what you know today through two core ingredients that was infused in you in school. One was instruction, and the other one was reproof. And you cannot have one without the other and learn. Now, we'll take it when it comes to the things of schoolwork, in most cases, but never when it comes to the things of God. Uh Uh-uh. When I don't get the guy I want, when I don't get the girl I want, when I don't get what I want in my life, when I don't get this, when I don't get that, we fall apart. Look at the last part of the verse. But he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. Now, as I said, verse 32 will take us up a next level from verse 31. And what he's saying here is throughout the passage, he keeps using the word heareth. Meaning not merely to hear, but paying specific attention to what you hear. I love the places in the Bible where it says, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. In every case when you find that, there's something really special going on that he wants to draw your attention to. Any instruction, and this is so true, any instruction that you and I may get that lacks the negative element of reproof, will not be real instruction. To get understanding, you must have a contrast, a negative and a positive element to see the real issue and to understand it. Illustrate the positive by the negative. You'll never fully understand the concept of light, which is positive, till you have darkness. That's the negative. And accepting both in your life is the key to getting to the goal, the prize of Christianity, and that is understanding all things through instruction and reproof. In the Army, in the Marine Corps, in the Navy, in the Air Force, you have what they call basic training. Basic training is 8 weeks, 10 weeks, or 11 weeks, whatever it is now, and it's two fundamental things, instructions and reproof. You can't get instruction without reproof. And when you have instruction and there's no reproof, you don't have any instruction. Hey, the Christian life is about coming to the end of self. 
The Christian life is about being submissive. You being in subjective to the Word of God and the structure that God has placed you in in the New Testament local church. God uses the instruction and reproof found in the Word of God over and over again in the Bible to give you, get you to a place where you can see things clearly. Now look at the next verse here, verse 33. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. This goes along with the last verse. It's a great verse. Fundamentally, it's saying before you get any honor with the judgment seat of Christ, there must be a life of serving God through humility. That's the fundamental principle on it. But let's look a little deeper. But honor only comes through instruction and reproof. And we all must humble ourselves to accept instruction and reproof. Some people have a tough time accepting instruction. You can't tell them anything. A lot of people, if not most people, have a hard time accepting reproof. For all of us, we have to equally embrace both. Because without the reproof, there's no real instruction. For all of us, we have to, we, we're here to learn from the Bible. You know, in my own life, I have found in the pursuit of understanding three key things that I always try to, try to keep before myself. And I learned this over 40-some years ago. You know, you put these three areas in your life as the focus and the form of structure in learning, and you're going to get it. You simply will. In learning from God through the New Testament, local New Testament church, our attitude of heart should be about three things. Wherever I go, whatever I look at, whatever I'm encounter with, whatever I have to deal with, honestly, sincerely, I try to put these three key areas of learning in my life. It's like the Lord said to me one time, Bob, if you really want instruction and understanding and you want to figure the thing out, ask me three things. And the first thing I always ask the Lord, Lord, show me what I need to do. Instruct me. Teach me. Give me the truth. My job as a pastor is to work hard all week to come to you and give you the best rendition of the Bible and its truth that I can. Your job is to work all week to keep your heart right in the right place so you can receive it and then do something with it and apply it. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him. God has instructions for you and for me. But we have the mind of Christ. The Word of God, its principles are the instructions of the Lord given through his mind, the Word of God. So the first thing I always ask the Lord in my own life is, Lord, show me what I need to do. I'll do whatever you want me to do, but you need to show me what you want me to do. If you can keep that first thing in your mind and everything that you deal with, you're going to get there. But there's two more. The second thing I ask is, Lord, show me what I need to do, but show me what I need to change. Reprove me where and when I need it. You know, life is a constant reforming and changing in all that we do as you grow. As you grow spiritually, you're going to see things differently. I, I've told you before that people come in with issues. They come in with problems. And I, I, I'm, never, 
I, I never blame them for where they're at. I never castigate them for what they've done or what they're dealing with. My job is to try to help them. But I always tell them this. Look, there's some things that you have to change. It isn't enough for me just to show you what you need to do. You need to understand that there's some things that you need to change because you can't solve the problems you have with the same kind of thinking that caused the problems you have. And sometimes this is, this is true of all of us. We don't want to admit we got issues. We don't want to admit there's things we got to change. The spiritual life and growth is like looking at the moon through a telescope. You walk out and the moon is bright and full and you say, wow, man, that looks so good. It looks beautiful. Somebody across the street has a telescope and you say, hey, can I have a look? And they say, yeah, come on over. And you look through that telescope and he's got about 20 or 30 power, brings it 30 times closer. You go, whoa, wow, man, that looks totally different. I can see much more than I did when I just looked at it with my, my naked eye. And he says, oh, that ain't nothing. Watch this. He puts it in an eyepiece and brings it up a hundred times. Whoa, man. He says, oh, that ain't nothing. Watch this. He cranks it up to 200, 300 power. 300 times closer. You can look down in the craters. What looked like a serene, pretty uh, place that glowed with a naked eye, when you put the magnification on it, looks like a junkyard. Busted craters, busted holes, busted rocks, strewn everywhere. And that's just the way your life goes. You see, when you just look at your life through your natural eye, you look pretty good, don't you? We all do. But boy, when you start to get the magnification of the Word of God in your life through your spiritual growth, you know what it does? It does the same thing a telescope does with the moon. It begins to show you the cracks, the crevices, the imperfections. And sometimes look, you're looking right down inside those craters of life to see what's in there. People sometimes don't like that. You don't like that. You'll have some people who will point your problems out to you to try to keep you down, to try to hurt you. And then you'll find other people who will, who will try to take those same issues and they'll try to help you. And let me just say, the person who tries to take the Word of God to help you will be one of your best friends in life. And then there's a third thing that I always ask the Lord. I say, Lord, show me what I need to do. Lord, show me what I need to change. And the third thing I ask him is, Lord, show me the right way to look at things. Help me get your perspective. Help me to learn biblical principles. Help me to let this mind be in me, which was also in you. I understand, God, that you never violate your own principles. So we have an unchanging rock, an anchor to hold on to. My job is to instruct you and to reprove you in all areas that need to change to get you where you need to be. Did you ever look at the word reprove? The word reprove is an incredible word. It's to reprove something. Take the word re, take the word prove. Re means again, prove means you're going to prove something. Reproof, reprove simply means that somebody is getting you to rethink your position and to prove to you 
in a Christian way that a life with God and following Him prove it to you is better than a life following the things of the world. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He says, that be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You and I as Christians, we have something to prove to the world that is lost. Do you understand that? And for you and I to get there, we have to reprove some things in our own lives, some things we've got to change. You put all three of those areas in your life and be accountable to them, and you'll get to where God wants you to be. You'll get the understanding that God wants you to have, and you'll be invaluable to God. You'll be invaluable to this work of God. You'll be invaluable to me in the ministry, and you'll be invaluable to others. Now, Don't take what I'm about to say the wrong way. In most cases, outside maybe your husband and wife, in one sense, I'm probably the best friend that you will ever have. And I'll tell you why. The reason I say that. Because I have, nor never will, have an ulterior motive to anything that I do for you. I personally want nothing from you. I have no hidden agenda with you. We don't have rich people in our church, but I've seen many, many churches, and you all have too, where if somebody's got a lot of bucks, you know, that the pastor shows him all this, and if you've got nothing, you get nothing from the pastor. He don't even know you're alive. You know what? It wouldn't matter if, if a hundred million or million billionaire came to this church. He would get treated just like everybody else. You know why? Because at the end of the day, it isn't about whether you're rich or you're poor, the middle class, you're all the same. I'm no better than you are. We're all in the same trench together. We all eat the same mud. We all share the same foxholes. We all do the same work. I have no hidden agenda with you. Everything I do is for one reason. Everything I do for you is for one reason. It's to make you better. Sometimes you don't appreciate it. Sometimes you don't want it. I get it. I understand, but there'll never be a day in my life looking at my people that God has given me that the number one goal for you that I have behind everything I do is that you'll be better. You'll be better. I follow the principles and the models of the Bible and everything I do to the best of my ability. I never try to make a move in life without a biblical principle behind it that justifies what I'm doing biblically in my own heart, my own mind. As far as I know, this church is the way that God intended a church to be after the model of the book of Acts and down through church history, which I spent the majority of my adult life going through as far as I can see in the New Testament. I want this church to be an absolute safe haven for every man and every woman and every child. I've told you many, many times, my model of a church in the Old Testament is in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through 2, the cave of Adullam. David is running from Saul. David's way out and he's, he's struggling with his own issues. And he, 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 he finds a cave that belongs to Adullam. And he takes up residency inside that cave. And the word spread that David 
was down in that cave. And the Bible says that, that all of the people that were distressed, all the people that were hurting, all the people that were struggling, all the people that were in debt, all the people that had infirmities came down to be part of that because they knew that with David there was a haven of safety. I know many of you have been beat up by churches. I know many of you have got the short end of the stick in Christianity from some pastors, from churches, and some Christians in general. And I want to tell you that I'm truly sorry for that. I'm embarrassed for that, that my profession of being a minister, and I know I can't speak for everybody, but it's a profession that churches get and pastors get. Like all preachers, all they care about is money. And all big churches just want to get everything they can from the people. That sickens me because that should not be the goal of a pastor in a church. The goal of a pastor in a church should be one solidary concept, and that is to help you be better. And I'm sorry for that. And I know that many of you have been beat up. You have been hurt by other churches. You have been lied about in other churches. There were ulterior motives in those churches. You threatened somebody in those churches. You were made to be the bad guy in those churches. And I understand that because you didn't get what you needed to get the way that you should have had it, it had an effect on you. Well, all I can tell you is this. Welcome to the cave of Adullam. Nobody will hurt you here. Nobody will ever hurt you again. You may hurt yourself, but no one here will ever hurt you. No one here will ever take advantage of you. No one here will ever have an ulterior motive of being your friend or saying they love you when they want something else from you. I have one goal for you. And everything we do, and that is to make you the very best you can be for God. And trouble comes in churches when a pastor wants that for his people, but the people don't want that from the pastor. And I get that. And I understand that. And every sermon I prepare, and every Bible study I teach, the endless hours of one-on-one, -on -one, the people ministry, the singles ministry, the athletic ministry, everything that we do, we have one thing in mind. I have one thing in mind. And that is to try to make you better. But you need to understand that real growth and learning and spiritual maturity will have to have with it not just instruction, but reproof. And without it, we have nothing of any value. You'll never become the man or the woman that God wants you to be if I only tell you what you want to hear. You'll never grow and never be stretched and never be exercised if there are no challenges in your life that you have to meet every day. 
If we go through life and I just both smoke in your ear and I tell you how great you are and you are and how much you just, and you are, and I love you very much, but the bottom line is this, everybody has change in their lives. Your job, my job, is to continue to put in the eyepieces of the telescope of the Word of God to keep looking at the imperfections and then working on them. I have no ulterior motive when I preach. I have nobody in mind when I say what I say. I've had people <laughs> call me up and say, well, someone so must have told you about my problem because you preach right on it. I guarantee you, nobody did. <clears throat> and if somebody did, I wouldn't make it the core value of my message. You give yourself too much credit. But I am not responsible for what the Holy Spirit of God does that if you have an issue in your life, I don't care what it is. I could preach Mary had a little lamb and the Holy Spirit of God would get to you. (laughs) And that is a good sermon. (laughs) Mary did have a little lamb and its fleece was white as snow. You'll never become what God wants you to be as long as somebody keeps telling you what you want to hear. I've known preachers that would tell people what they wanted to hear just so they'd stay and they wouldn't leave. Or so I can get something from you. Let me tell you something, my dear people. Growth is change. And we as human beings, we just don't like to change. We don't like it in our job when you've done the same job for 20 years and suddenly they put you in another place that you don't know ever done it before. You don't like that. I don't like that. But growth is change. And change requires instructions. And change requires reproof. Reproving something to you. Giving you the reproof that a life with God is a lot better than a life where you're at. That your viewpoint, the way you look at things, needs a reproving because to reprove that the way to look at things is God's way. Reproving to you that a life with God is better than a life in the world. The Bible says, A light in your eyes that maketh your heart rejoice and your bones fat, making you spiritually strong in everything that you do. Having people look at you and you look at them. You see them the way God sees them and they see you through the eyes of someone who looks like Christ. Years ago, Mel told a story of a little girl that was in his youth group. And she really was a witness at school. She really loved the Lord, loved the Bible. Just a sweetheart little girl. And she went into the restroom one day on a a break at school, and four or five of the other girls were in there. She always carried her Bible. She always had a great testimony. And the girls, as girls can be, turned around and looked at her and said, Good morning, Jesus. How's Jesus today? Well, Jesus, that's a nice dress. Jesus, I see you brought your Bible today. And this went on and on and on and on. They went on her way. She went on her way. <clears throat> Mel told a story that <clears throat> she was talking to him about something else. And she said, uh, you know, I just need to tell you, 
I was at school today, and I walked into the girls' restroom, and there was four or five girls there, and they started making fun of me and calling me Jesus. And Mel was getting ready to try to say, well, you know, honey, that's just the way the world is, and it's okay, and don't worry about that. And before he could ever get the words out, she said to him, she says, you know what, that was the greatest thing that anybody ever said to me, that they would see me and think I was Jesus. What does the world think when they see you and me? The light of the eye is what shines deep down inside us that the world sees. The structure, the bones being fat, your spiritual structure being strong, that wherever you go, walk into a place that people know there's something different about you. That's the key. My goal for you is just that. Never think for a moment that in anything I do, it isn't about trying to help you be better in everything you do for the Lord. Proverbs chapter 15 has been a great chapter. And next week we'll move into Proverbs chapter 16. Let's pray. Father.